Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Alone we can do so little. Together we can do so much. Is a quote from Helen Keller the prolific American author, lecturer, and political activist. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guests cannot stress enough the sheer importance of working together to achieve a common goal. From the family dinner table, to the perils of the entrepreneur, and the success in business, to her deeds in philanthropy, to the game they play in heaven. Our guest today is Josephine Suka AM, principal and co-owner of BuildCorp, an Australian construction company which she established with her husband, Tony, 30 years ago. She's also non-executive director of Washington H. Sol Patterson & Company, Growth Point Properties Australia, the Property Council of Australia, the Australian Museum, Opera Australia, and the Sydney University Football Club Foundation. She is also the chair of the Build Corp Foundation and president of Australian Women's Rugby. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blend & Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, we have a candid conversation with one of the founders of BuildCorp, born out of Australia's last recession 30 years ago. Josephine shares with us the lessons learned, the importance of staying true to one's values, and the amazing teamwork behind the success of the company. She talks about her passions from Australian rugby and supporting the women's game to her advocacy for mental health and sheds a light on this issue quietly plaguing our society, heightened by the pandemic and the great work done by so many as a reminder to us all. Finally, whilst in the midst of Australia's next recession, Josephine challenges us to think differently and take this time as an opportunity to reflect look within, and learn from this collective experience to ask ourselves, how will we move forward? And what do we do together for our country and our future? So sit back and enjoy. It all starts with the family. Josephine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Josephine, where, where did you grow up? What's the story behind your success? I grew up in Gaimia Bay. I'm a girl from the Shire. Born in Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, but my father was an intern at Canterbury Hospital. And so my first home was one of the little houses that the interns lived in. And when I was one, they bought a home in Carlton. And my father was working at St. George Hospital at the time. 
and he had to be near the hospital. So that's where I was until I was in year five and we went to a school across the road from um, Jubilee Oval, Carlton South Public School. And then in year five, he took a job running Sutherland Hospital and we had to move to the Shire, which was beautiful. And they bought a block of land in Guymere Bay and built a home and we were raised there and it was a very happy upbringing. So dad, was dad a doctor by, by background? He was a doctor. He was a consultant physician, but he had a real interest in public hospital administration and he was actually deputy superintendent at St George under the gentleman by the name of Dr. Frank Broderick, uh, Elizabeth Broderick's father, who you may know. And then um, he took a role as superintendent of Sutherland. And the Brodericks, interestingly, also moved um, the similar year and bought a block of land next door. And so the three Broderick girls and the three McDessie girls, as we were, were all sort of raised next door to each other and our fathers were colleagues. So it was a very happy upbringing. And what was the discussions like at the dinner table? My father was a very quiet man. He passed away 13 years ago, but he was a man of, um, I would say, great uh, brevity. And we were a noisy family. We were loud. That was my mother's side of the family with three girls and a boy who came along at the end. And I think after a very busy day, he just used to like to sit and listen to us. And he'd participate occasionally and watch, but he just, I think, was talked out. And his job was hard. It wouldn't have been easy. I feel privileged to have been able to watch a couple of doctors in my family and what their life is like and they're coming home and just needing empty time. And for him, empty time was sitting at the table with the family and I remember, and just hearing us talk a lot. And I remember even towards the end when he was unwell and he was passing away, we'd say to him, Dad, do you need anything? You know, what do you want? And he'd say, just keep talking amongst yourselves. And he'd close his head. That was uh, what he was used to. So it was a, a happy table. He wouldn't describe himself as socialist, but I remember a poster of Gough Whitlam in our front lawn when the elections were on. Remember when they used to put those black and white posters of politicians? There was this one of him striding that was in our front lawn at Carlton. All of my cousins went to private schools except my sisters and brother and I. Dad was really, you know, public school education was very good. If, you know, I don't want you to think you're better than the person alongside you, which of course was a view, not anything right or wrong, but it was important to him that we mixed with people in our area. It was important to him that he worked the service of the community and I think his role in public hospital was that. So dad was a public servant, mum stayed at home, she didn't work in paid employment. No, we didn't have a lot of money but I think all of us will say we had everything. Was it the father's influence which stimulated the move into, I guess, the Garvin Institute and, and medical research in your early days? I was a very average student. I went to the local high school and I didn't really know what specifically I wanted to do with respect to vocation, but I was I had an interest in the science subjects that I was studying at school, so I studied those and when I finished school. I wasn't entirely sure, but I can remember a conversation I had with Dad and I got my results and he said, what are you interested in? And I said, actually sewing, dressmaking, and I like science. And he said, well, they're quite different. And he said, if science is something you think you're interested in, that will require you to go to university. So if you want to do that, have a crack at that first and you know, you might like to pick the other one up later. So I went off there, not really clear on my vocation, but knowing the sort of things I liked, and I found the degree enjoyable. What did you specialise in? I have an honours degree in physiology and pharmacology, and I did that last honours year at the Garvin Institute, and that was really fun. I was in a diabetes research unit, and I my thesis was on muscle metabolism during exercise, where I worked on laboratory rats. I was in a really terrific 
group. That was a lot of fun, actually, and I, and I did enjoy it. And I thought, well, this is my career. This is what I'll be doing. And life took an interesting turn. Exactly. So why am I sitting in front of someone who's built a reputation in the world of construction? Well, I met a builder. <laughs> and I was I had finished my degree, actually, and I'd been offered a little three-month block of work at the Garvin and in between there, you know, finishing you know, handing in my thesis and starting the Garb. And I took a three-week uh, job at the then Civil and Civic, which was part of Landlease. And it was a, a site administration role, which was pretty much typing, getting coffees, office clothing. And we had become engaged, my husband and I. We were saving to buy a house. And I was working in any job that I could find and I applied for and, and took that job. And I don't know, that was 35 years ago. Here I am still in construction. But didn't you spend some time as a school teacher as well? I did. While I was working, I, I got a bit bored. I like to be busy. So I enrolled in a diploma of education and I have that. And interestingly, I didn't think it would be something that I would love as much as I did. It was something I thought, well, that would be a good thing to have in my you know arsenal of education. For one day, it might be good when we've got a family, the holidays look like they align. I didn't really give it much more thought than that, but I was interested in learning. I've always been interested in learning. And of course, you have to go out and do a prac. And my very first one was by that stage, Tony and I had bought a house in the Shire and I was placed at a school there and I just had no idea I'd love working with teenagers. They were fantastic. I found it really inspiring. And my husband often says, if we ever sell the business one day or a tie, he said, I bet she goes back and teaches somewhere and I would do it for nothing. It was wonderful. So what's the story then behind the creation of BuildCorp? So you're, you're a school teacher, your husband is in, in the industry. So what? how did this all come about? I enjoyed the time I had on site. I didn't have, of course, any of the technical construction skills. Tony has a Bachelor of Building, so um, he's not a, a, on the tools builder. He's, a, I guess, a big building builder. And we thought one day we might like to start our own construction company, and I said, well, when the time is right and when the market is right and we've set ourselves up, I would be really happy to partner with him and let's start small and move along. I had started teaching at high school and I quite liked it. I was We were living in Gaimia Bay and I was teaching science at Gaimia High School, which was where I went, which was quite funny. Some of my teachers were still there. And I had a brother there, incidentally, as well, who was still at the school. He was in year 11. I walked into my first class, actually, and there he was sitting in the front row. And I walked back out and said to my boss, I don't think you want me teaching this chemistry class. I said my maiden name was McDessie and um, my brother's in that chemistry class. I said, oh, no, no, that won't do. Can you teach biology? And I said, yes. So he swapped me and I ended up teaching my now sister-in-law, right. which was lovely. So um, it was a very happy time. But I was heavily pregnant. He had by that stage moved to a company called Gervan Corporation, which was a publicly listed company. And I was seven and a half months pregnant and Gervin were beginning to look a bit shaky and, uh, you know, a month out the writing was on the wall as to um, what might happen with Gervin. And Tony was project managing a really large commercial building, couple of commercial buildings for two Japanese clients, Kanoiki and Seito. That project had won an Australian Quality Award and the client had developed a real confidence in Tony. And halfway through that project completion, and uh, share price was tumbling in Gervan and the writing was on the wall. Uh, we set up about a month out a shelf company, not entirely sure what we'd do with that. And, of course, then Gervan went into receivership, then into liquidation. I think share price got down to nearly, you know, a cent. It was, it was really sad, actually. 
we had a very quick turnaround and think, what are we going to do? And it wasn't our plan to set up our construction company in the middle of a recession when I was seven months pregnant and, you know, this job the way it was. But what practically happened was we had a conversation and said, okay, maybe this is our opportunity. We had a conversation and said, let's give it a go. Let's approach the client and see if they'll back us to finish the project. There was $47 million worth of work left. I don't know what that would be in today's dollars. It was 1990. They trusted Tony, but they had already had a conversation with a large tier one company and said to Tony, no, um, I've already spoken to somebody, but they would like you to uh, work for them and run the project. And we sort of held our breath and we decided to stand our ground and Tony said, no, I'll do it on my own. I'll, I won't do it at all. And the team were with Tony and I was with him and you sort of hold your breath and go and the client said okay and backed him. These are Japanese clients? Yep. Wow. And AGC were the other yeah, investment partner in there, so it was very interesting. So Tony rang me at home and said, okay, they said yes. And I was uh, had stopped working by that stage. I was very advanced in the pregnancy. And he rang me and said, Josephine, I need you to get down to the bank. I need $30,000 in cash at the Chatswood branch of the ANZ Bank by 3 o'clock this afternoon to pay the men to get everybody back on site. And I said, no problem. And I was too big to drive by that stage. I couldn't even get myself down. So I rang my mum and said, could you just run me down to the bank? And that little bank manager was used to me turning up with my passbook, my little, you know, the handwritten passbook. And he would see me in the line every Friday and come out and say hello to customers the way they used to back in the day. And I waddled in and he said, oh, yeah, that's what happens when you marry a rugby player. They have big rugby babies. He said, Josephine, you look terrible. I said, well, this is what's happened. He said, oh, it's terrible. I said, but Tony needs $30,000 at the Chatswood branch of the ANZ Bank. And he said, no branch will have that much cash. I'll need to get it from a handful of branches. So um, you look terrible. Just go home. I will sort that out and make sure the money's at Chatswood for him in time. And God bless him, he did. He said, I'll, and I'll bring the paperwork around to you tomorrow, which I signed the next day. It was a different way of doing business then. You know, there was, he had watched me and Tony, and, you know, we were solid. We had our little triple fronted fibro house in Guyami Bay, which we were very proud of. And, but he'd watched us working really hard. We, I was working three jobs, Tony had two to try and pay down as much of it as we could before we had a family because I really wanted to stay at home and be with children when I had them. He backed us and on a handshake we did that and then so began Build Corp. Was Tony from a family which was entrepreneurial or you both? You, know, you, you didn't come necessarily from an entrepreneurial family, so. I wouldn't say my father was entrepreneurial. He liked steady and safe. His father, however, founded Midford School Shirts Lebanese families, and both Tony and my parents were born in Lebanon, there is a, an entrepreneurial vein, it, I feel, in so many Lebanese families. I mean, Phoenicians are traders, right? So my father was from an entre entrepreneurial father, I would say, who had 11 children. Two of them are doctors and the rest worked in the family business. And Tony's family, uh, his father was a builder developer, as were his brothers. And so it was certainly in his DNA. So I wasn't frightened of running a business and nor was Tony. We'd been there. It's nice to be able to control your own destiny and your own business. And more importantly, we weren't afraid of hard work. And 
we were very fortunate to be given a good upbringing and knew that if we did the right thing, people would come along, as, you know, alongside us and lift us. And that was certainly our experience. We've been very fortunate. Well, why did the uh, the rest of the team join join you straight away? As you said, you had to get the $30,000 and get that out quick to make sure everybody got paid. But it's more than that because they're obviously taking a risk as well. They can go elsewhere. What do you think made them be attracted to Tony's leadership? It was the middle of a recession. Interest rates were 18.5%. The property industry was smashed. Yeah, right. They had a job. But over and above that, um, it was mobile phones had, were just sort of a thing. You know, there were the big bricks that you'd carry around in a handbag or, or, what, or, you know, fixed in your car. So while we were still using landlines and I was at home, I was receiving a number of phone calls for Tony. My name is Mick Such and Such. I'm Johnny So and So. I just want you to let Tony know wherever he goes, I go. And so there was a, a really lovely following for Tony. He's a he has a lovely leadership style. It's it's quiet and he leads from the front, sort of in there with his team. That's just the way he operates. And so by the time this happened, people wanted to remain with him. So when you look back all those years ago, so thirty years ago. Go and speak to accountants for anyone starting up a business. They tell you to think really clearly and have a good business plan. Did you have one? In all honesty? And did no. you follow it? Well, I'll tell you what we had, which is interesting. So there was this fellow, is this fellow by the name of Brian Tracy. And he is a Canadian, what would you call him, motivational speaker? Tony and I, I'm a girl from Guyamere High School. Tony went to Christian Brothers Lewisham but had five years in Lebanon. He was sent to Lebanon when he was 11 to go to boarding school there in 1970 to 75 Then civil war broke out and he came home. So we're both university educated but, you know, there's no MBA, there's no, and in my case with a science degree, there's no business background. But we had this business and we were young and you've sort of got to learn on the job, so to speak. So every opportunity we had, if we were in the car, we were listening to cassette tapes, reading books. Tony was a student and a, oh, then went on to be a judge of the Australian Quality Awards. So he was a disciple of Edward Deming, um, Total Quality Management, the fellow who put Japan, the American who helped put Japan back together again after World War II. But everything we've done, we've done together. So as he was studying that, so was I. I can remember a holiday we had in New Zealand where we both read together. We take turns reading Edward Deming's book. It was quite interesting. But we were young and we were looking for direction and how to lead, how to be. But one of the things this Brian Tracy fellow said was it's really important to have a essentially a plan for your life. And we were young and working very hard and learning how to work smart. And he said what everybody should do is sit down and write a list, a blue sky list of all the things they want to do or want to be or would like in their lives and not not in a way that says if I had more money or if I, if I lived in another country, a total blue sky list. So we did that. And you don't know what you don't know, right? So for me in my world, I was like, oh, Tony, wouldn't it be lovely if one day we could live in a nice house on the water? I was being raised in the show. Mum and Dad had a house on the water and we were living in our little place. And so that was as aspirational as I could be with respect to property. And wow, what if one day we could we had children who might be able to afford to go to a private school? Wouldn't that be amazing? So we sat down with a list of as aspirational as we knew to be with what we understood. And Brian Tracy said that there is some Harvard Business School, or he quoted a Harvard Business School study 
that explained the businesses that didn't have a strategic plan and people who didn't have a plan were, were likely to fail, particularly the businesses. He said even if it was a business plan, you know, scratched on the back of a napkin in a restaurant versus having nothing at all. But this life plan piece was really interesting uh, to us. And he said, write your list and put it away, but make sure you write it, the actors in writing it down. And so we did it together. And then we came to move house four to five years later and most of those things had happened. And we're like, wow, that's kind of pretty powerful. So we sat down and did it again. And with that backdrop and with a father who said to Tony and I, when we, my father, when we set up Build Corp, he said, you know, I've watched our family business, Midfit. He said, my family worked really hard to set their business up and we worked so hard sometimes we forgot why we were working. And the idea of working is to have a better quality of life and make sure when you start this business, if it impedes your quality of life, you've got it the wrong way around. So um, we've tried to balance that through the whole thing, which strangely I thought when I was a young woman would mean we'd be less busy, but clearly my husband and I like busy and we're still very busy, but uh, we're probably just where we want to be now, which is good. So I think it worked. So if I walk into the BuildCorp head office, what's the feeling going to be when, I, when we walk, if I took someone with me, what if we sat there and watched what was going on in reception? What sort of feeling am I going to get? Angela would welcome you with her beautiful smile uh, because she tells me you can hear people smile through the phone when you answer the phone and she does that. And we have a big breakout area where you'll see lots of men and women and builders and we look a bit like the United Nations in a BuildCorp over two floors and we, as builders, and I think that's what I liked about the industry, we have to collaborate to get anything done. No one can do anything on their own. So they're great team players and great team people and I think this is something that Tony benefited from enormously in his time in rugby union. Team sports do teach people transferable skills and particularly if you're someone who's going to work on a construction site or in a construction industry it's a wonderful skill to have and so you'll see a group of people who are working really hard very fast in a high pressure environment but um, really good people great culture so when you look back all those years ago and you set up your plan for your, just your life plan then you've got the build corp plan what was, the, what, what was the scale you were attempting to get to? But also what was the nature that you were focusing on? Has that changed somewhat too, Josephine? Hmm. We never had scale in mind. We had controlled growth, really steady, safe, controlled growth. And I think that comes from coming out of the ashes of another company and setting up in a recession. It sharpens your focus on what safe looks like and a real commitment to ensuring that no other family would have a partner come home the way my partner came home that day without a job. I was that woman. I don't want to, by my hand or Tony's hand, if we can help it, have that happen for any of our people. So it informs the way you grow and develop your business and the way you lead, I think. So I think that lived experience has kept it uh, very controlled for us. The easiest thing to do would be to flip the business to a million-dollar business. That's easy. Profit margin is what we focus on. Much rather a much smaller business and have it be profitable then be able to say it's a billion-dollar business. We could have done that 10 years ago. That's the easy bit. So how did you become so successful and what was the uh, the stepping stones? I understand the fact that you, you said you've got a good leadership style between you both and there's engagement, but what's your role? What's Tony's role? Would it be like Tony is the leader of the business, okay. no question. Tony leads the business. We've always worked together, interestingly. 
when I was in at Civil and Civic, I ended up half of the sites I was on were with other builders and some were with him. And we realised we could work together and we worked well together. We're totally different styles, but we're complementary. And I think that's informed the way we build our management and leadership teams. We've understood that you don't want more of the same. You need complementary skills. So if I look at our leadership team in a build corp now and our general managers, not one of them are the same and that's great. Tony and I aren't the same, but we know where to cover each other. And there's a, a saying a lot of the team use a build corp, which is, you know, one plus one equals three. And if you get two really effective managers or two really effective people working together with complementary skills, you'll get more than, you know, 50% of 50% makes 100, you'll get 100 and, you know, 50%. You'll get. So it's, um, I think we've benefited from that. We have learned each other's strengths. Tony is no question the face of Build Corp in the business and it's his leadership style that our people follow. He will say everyone um, in a hard hat reports up to him, probably in the, in the administration side reports, you know, to me, but that, that's really not been the case. I'm a 50% owner of the business, of course, and Tony's the other 50%, so I guess my role is more an engaged shareholder and I come in and out as there are areas that I want to see focused on where the business needs a bit of a hand and right now it's um, everyone's sleeves are rolled up. We're all in there. But you're talking about all those years ago when you that banker did you the favour and supported you and i.e. that was old-fashioned relationships. Is that build corp to the industry? Yeah, I, I think so. I think most people so How important is it, say, Josephine? Okay, so there's a really low barrier to entry to become a builder. Anyone can hang a shingle and go, I'm a builder. And that in itself creates its own issues, cracking, cladding, oh, you name it. Practices that are perhaps suboptimal, but thankfully uh, Tony coming out of that Lend-Lease, Lend-Lease at the time under Dick Dusseldorf, back then it was like a, it was like a postgraduate education. It was glorious and there are so many legacies that for people who have left uh, Lend-Lease with that backdrop we've all benefited from. We have something we call a state of the nation where twice a year we bring all our people in. I'm pretty sure that's what they called it at Lend-Lease at the time, civil and civic, but we, they really did give us a, a corporate mindset and framework and when we began Build Corp, we brought in people around us who were smarter than us, who had worked in that corporate environment. We went to uh, Phillips Fox to get our head contract set up. We were, you know, um, we built a business framework and model bigger than our business that we grew into. We didn't have to figure that out and sort of reverse engineer it in. But it kept us with a tier one mindset from the very beginning and the way we report, the way we set up our systems. And as we could afford to continue to grow the business and bring in more group support, we did that. But certainly the way we behave and conduct ourselves, we like to think we conduct ourselves like a tier one. So what's been the uh, the key turning points, ups and downs? No. You survived three, three recessions so far, haven't you? Yeah, I don't know if there's been a turning point, but I think there was a realisation in 2000 when the next economic hit came to New South Wales. In 2000, the Sydney Olympics was a whole bunch of works up to um, the Olympics, which I think was around September. Um, it was a year the GST was introduced and the market just panicked and wanted everything built before the Olympics and then the work just dropped off and we were watching our pipeline just begin to disappear. And I guess a test of a good business is can it stand, can your systems and your people stand a, a downturn? There's no question. It's You read about it and hear about it, but then you realise that the quality of your people, the quality of the systems you've invested in, 
our adherence and conformance to those systems really stood us in good stead and you're like, okay, we've got a steady, stable business. And that recognition that it could take a hit, the GFC came and it was our most financially successful year. And I'm, yeah, we're right in the middle of this downturn now, uh, which is interesting. I'm not fearful of it because I trust our systems. Uh, We've got a good solid balance sheet and I trust our people. But it's no time for um, passengers and it's no time for taking your eye off the main game. There's real margin compression, but we're doing more revenue at the moment than we did last year. There's often a flight to quality at times like now, and we saw that in the GFC. Boards get nervous, people get nervous, and they're like, there's the cheapest price over there, but, you know, build corp by the second cheapest price and no, you're not the cheapest, but we're nervous. I'm like, well, we're not going to risk putting a subcontractor on that may not be able to do this. We're telling you this. So, you know, I think what we're observing is is a flight to quality and, and trust, but um, there's no question there is definite margin pressure which pushes any business up the risk curve and you can't take your eye off your sensible process adherence. So are you seeing a lot of the organisations or competitors fall on the wayside in the industry? No, um, not yet. And I hope we don't. Certainly we saw it a bit earlier in the GFC and certainly in 1990, but I don't think the worst has come yet. I think we're looking to March and April and just watching carefully. I think there is worse to come. Look, businesses that weren't set up and didn't have good processes, good people now, you can't fix it now in the middle of this. Right? You're either set up or you've got. So I think that's probably the first piece. We're very lucky because we, and you hear people say it, but it's true, we, we've been awarded two Employer of Choice Awards um, and we're waiting to have our third one. It'll be three consecutive years if we pick this one up, which would be great. But it's all about your people. And you can, they're words and you can say it, but there's no question. If you, you've got the wrong people out there making the wrong decisions with um, uh, totally misaligned to the values of your organisation, no business is going to survive that. So right now, of course, we all have an increased focus on, you know, ensuring we deliver well and don't drop the ball and, and try and make sure we deliver in a way that the clients are really happy and are happy to give us the next, you know, the next project. But I don't know how you get away from people. Well, what is leadership to both you and Tony, Josephine, and and how and what sort of competencies or I don't know what's that magic thing that you look for in people, which means they one they're attracted to you, but two they stick around. I think you need in a, in the case of our business, the leader is Tony, and people who want to work with and understand what drives Tony and the values that he stands for and that we as a business stand for. He is a as I said, get in there. In amongst it, get in there with the team. His happy place is on site with his people. These days he does so little of that because he genuinely can't add value to a site day-to-day process, but he's really, really happiest when he's <laughs> making sure his people understand that he gets what, how hard it is towards a pointy end of a project when they're there at four in the morning because the client's starting the next day. I've often dropped him down in the middle of the night to projects where he knows his team is there and he knows there's nothing he can do, but he gets his shorts on and he's, you know, he takes a broom from home and gets on a wheelbarrow and sometimes he's just buying coffee and sometimes he's just sitting there. But they know that he knows what it's like and I think that's really important. So I think it's being amongst it. I think leadership in times like now can be a little bit different to the extent that I think sometimes in good times it can be a bit easier and um, and if you are not inclined to roll your sleeves up and you're behaving a bit like a passenger, you're, you've really got to 
getting there amongst it and understand we're all trying to come out the other end feeling a bit, as Tony says, bruised but not maimed. All of our people took temporary pay cuts, which we're about to reverse now. God bless them, but they got in there with us. The last uh, in the 2000 downturn, we called all of our people in and said, "There's a Ford workload. There's no work in Sydney. What do you reckon? What should we do?" Our people said, "We reckon we should all go to four days." And you know, we, we, this all being in it together, being it's a thing, and it works. When people follow you, they don't need to necessarily like what they have to do, like taking a pay cut. That's awful in this case, a temporary pay cut, but they've got to get it. They've got to understand why. And if you've got that in your business, then I think you're very lucky and, and we certainly have that. So I think it's leadership is ensuring we've got the right people in the right roles for the right time. And right now is pressure. Everyone's working hard. We're all working harder for less. I've never worked so hard in my life and I thought I worked pretty hard and I think everyone would say that. But understanding the end, the end game. How do you communicate the message in this sort of time of uncertainty? You said you do a, a catch-up twice a year. Is that? But how else do you do it? State of the Nation. Um, our State of the Nation twice a year where mostly Tony, but Tony and I address all of our staff. We did our first one online this year, which was quite lovely. Our business is across the eastern seaboard of Australia, so usually we have to do a state at a time, and it's really lovely to be able to do the whole group together. Strange but good. In COVID, there was a, a leadership team was meeting every single day and we put out a communication every single day. When Tony and I decided it was probably time to get a video up of us, we were all in isolation at home. We jumped onto our iPad and it was quite interesting, the feedback we got. And we shot a message out to our people in a very Tony and Josephine way that was probably, well, no, that was pretty clumsy and trying to figure out where the on-off switch was and are we still recording type stuff. And uh, it was uploaded to our people and we said, give us any feedback, anything we need to know. But it was a personal from the heart message and our people know us well enough to know that. We sit in open plan, we, our values, the way we behave, they see us together all the time. I think we're pretty easy to read. They didn't see anything different. They saw Tony and Josephine. But interestingly, we had some feedback from families because one of the things we didn't bank on was as they were opening and watching a video from Tony and I, in lockdown, they were doing it at home and all their families were watching. And we received some lovely messages from partners saying, wow, I work for a big corporate and our CEO does this daily video thing and then we've got a full studio and he's in a suit. And i got to be honest with you, it's actually been a bit scary. It feels wartime. Whereas, you know, Tony and Josephine were perhaps a little less elegant than that <laughs> and certainly in the delivery, but um, it was real. So I think leadership in times like now needs to look authentic. And if we'd have done that, I think that might have not quite looked at what we needed. They, we'd also been receiving a lot of messages asking about our children. Uh, one, our son works uh, with us in the business, but our daughter's a doctor and they knew she was working in a hospital and in a general practice and some really lovely, thoughtful stuff. So, you know, sharing some personal things too. You know, thank you for asking. He's, at the moment, you know, our son Jordan is going to turn 30 on his own in his apartment with his girlfriend, but oh, well, um, we're all going to have a Zoom happy birthday for him there and Isabella is going really well and nearly ended up on JobKeeper, but thanks for asking. She's going okay. And um, you know, so that real level of um, that humanness, you know, our mums are still okay. We're not seeing them very much. We're meals on wheels. We're dropping, you know, so that people genuinely know that we do feel and we know what this is like and certainly back to when we began the business, that was a pretty scary time and a lot of our people's partners have lost 
jobs and or uh, working reduced workloads and it's frightening. It's all about the family business, isn't that family feeling? It is and it's it's not very strategic, I know, and it's not probably not very Harvard Business School. But so if one of your children wasn't living up to their expectations or your expectations of them, or they or they had misstepped or missaid something or not done the right thing, you wouldn't sack them first up. You wouldn't well, you couldn't, right? If you actually cared about them and they're in your family, you'd have a go at trying to help them sort themselves out. And so if you and I know how unscientific and uncorporate this sounds. But pretty much everyone at Build Corp, they come in and we're not always going to get things right. But if you can look to your people that work with you and say, well, you know, none of us get everything right, but here I am to work alongside you to help you be the best you can be. And in that, you will win, we will win. You've got a half better chance of doing it. Now, as the business grows, it becomes harder to do one-on-one and we've probably got about 330 people now. And that becomes difficult. And, of course, we have that uh, tyranny of distance um, and overlaid with the fact that most of our workforce are on sites. Yeah, right. So there's that ge- we're sort of quite disparate, geographically spread. That becomes harder and harder the bigger we are. So um, over-communicating becomes a thing you do and I'd rather people just go, oh, another thing from Tony Josephine, delete, versus uh, be told we've got no idea what they stand for. We need to hear from them. So, um, yeah, communication's key. What's going to happen in the future? We've got the budget coming up. Uh, we're going to see a, um, a bit of a, a splash by the treasurer in regard to stimulating the whole the whole sector. Mm. I think we need to um, think big, and I like this Andrew Liveris Council that has set up. This is bringing in all the smarts you have around you, and this is what you do in times like this. You reach out and go, who are the people who are expert in uh, some of these fields. So I ran into Edwina McCann the other um, the other night who um, looks after Vogue's lifestyle magazines and she is part of that council um, where they're looking at manufacturing. Like, And she shared with me, she said, you know, Josephine, um, wool, these days where we used to, you know, shear the wool, you know, raise a sheep, shear the wool, send it over to um, China to be ma- to be manufactured into a wool product and then off to Italy to be made and we buy it back versus today. She said, seriously, you just feed it into a machine (laughs) and out the other end comes. So people who know in Australia who know how we can stimulate different parts of the economy and how, and I am encouraged that government's doing that. I do think we need to be able to walk and chew gum on this. There's a long-term look to the nation and says, what have we seen that's working and what isn't? And probably we're all going to put our hand up and go, mm, is this federated model still working? <laughs> That's the long-term thinking. And the short-term one is what do we need to do to keep uh, businesses viable now and people viable now? Because the more businesses close, it takes a really long time to set them back up again. So um, how do we keep the thing afloat? I think the banks have been great in carrying their share, but I've no idea what they're going to come uh, forward with. But I hope in it on a personal note there's a little bit around mental health and because that's going to play a, have a create a very big load on our health system, a disproportionate load, which will then have knock-on effects to our commercial world, et cetera. Has there been any sort of key learnings or breakthroughs in, I guess, from the industry or even from from BuildCorp in the way that you've operated as a result of COVID? You know, you've got other companies talking about they all work from home, et cetera, et cetera, but you, your guys are all on site. But is, any, is anything new come out of it all? Yeah, so I think – when I speak to other 
other business leaders. We taught, we all have been on a bit of a, a roller coaster journey of, okay, this working from home thing, we can do it if we have to. And then, okay, now it's a bit tricky. And, it, and a lot of us are coming full circle and saying, mm, not so sure if this is helpful long-term for supporting young people who are coming in or new people coming into an industry where they really do need to, uh, so much of their learning does happen by osmosis. When I hear fully evolved leaders of businesses say, everyone should be able to work from home. I can work from home. It works really well for me. I just want to say, well, congratulations. You're an evolved leader. I'd expect you to be able to work in the back of your car. But how is that paying forward what somebody did for you to tomorrow's leaders? And to my mind, I think you need to get yourself back into the office or somewhere front-facing where people new to your industry or your business are able to benefit from just sitting in the boardroom with you as you negotiate a contract or you interview a new employee or you just get about your business. I think we miss we, this working from home thing needs a bit of a rethink. I think there's a lot more we, we are going to be able to do from home, there's no question, but for a business like ours in construction where most of our workforce is on site, Tony and I are really mindful of creating an us and them mentality we were because people in our office were able to go, today I'll work from home, today I won't, because, you know, that was what we'd asked them to do and that's what the government had asked us to do. But uh, very quickly, there's no question, there was a um, a feeling of us and them. We, we had staff on, working on St Vincent's Public Hospital's emergency department as COVID hit, so arguably one of the epicentres of the virus, who turned up to work every single day and subcontractors. If you're one of those people and you know that a whole bunch of other part of your business in an ivory tower can go, well, I'll go to the office today, I won't I? Let me think. It's a bit tough. So for us as a business trying to ensure that uh, we're all the same, we are genuinely all in this together, we've had to think hard about that. But certainly there are efficiencies for some roles. But I've got to say most of our people, the minute they could, were back in the office. We've watched them hard, but particularly pulling tender bids together and that you really do need to be there and look. Right now, it, it's helpful for Tony and I to have as many hands on deck as we can. There's no question, and having uh, people around has certainly been a, um, a huge support to us. Are the government's going to cut the bureaucracy? Now, I, I hear all the stories regarding construction and sign-offs and investment and cost of tendering, etc. Are, are they going to realise that business needs a hand up here? I hope so. I don't know because no sooner do does government sort of talk about pulling back a bit, then, you know, th th look, we write contracts, we write employment contracts for the tiny minority of people who do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. We write them and sign them and put them in a bottom drawer and 99.99% of the time never look at them. Yeah. It's how the layers of bureaucracy ended up in there. So we only have ourselves to blame. But there is no question some businesses will become uncompetitive because they're just not going to be able to afford dealing with some of that red tape. So what do we actually want to protect? And what are we trying to do here with some of these? And if we sit down and say, what, what is this particular process or this particular sign-off or this, what are we trying to achieve here? And I think we saw it a bit with the banks this week where I spoke about, you know, well, let's put the onus on some of these loans on the borrowers, not the banks, to have to ensure that, you know, Josephine is going to be liquid tomorrow or Greg is going to be. So I, I think a move towards some of this type of more sensible thinking is going to be helpful. And what do you actually think, Josephine? I know you'll be mindful of what you say, but do you think the state governments and federal governments have really got their act together in the last eight to nine months? You know, there's been 
I, I, st- I struggle sometimes. They really comprehend when a business closes, they don't necessarily open up again. There's a lot of people really struggling out there. The, the unemployment stats aren't accurate. There's no way in the world those numbers add up when employment actually means one hour a week. So, you know, I just think this as an economy, as a nation, having that discussion or even business standing up, having the discussion properly with government. What do you, you know, you're a business trader. What do you, what do you think's happening out there? I would hate to be government at the moment. I think they've just got, how do you win? How, how do you possibly get it right? So you've got this pandemic worst that we've ever seen and with implications, economic implications worse than we've ever seen. And you don't want to take your foot off Victoria uh, too soon on that because we know how quickly it can flare up. That said, we've all watched some of the people that can't get across borders to funerals or to hospitals and, and, and we've seen all that. And that they're just the social and, and health issues, let alone the economic issues. But there is no economy without healthy people. And I've got to say, I feel what's happened in the construction industry should be informative for most people if they'll just turn their mind to it. We haven't missed a beat. We've worked in New South Wales and Queensland every single day since COVID hit. The minute it happened and my husband Tony describes this as uh, something fabulous in builders because he thinks every builder is fabulous. Of course he does and so do I actually. They're really compliant because it's a dangerous industry. So when the minute you say you need to, you know, largely fellas, mostly fellas, more and more women but mostly fellas, you know, guys, today everyone's walking on the left-hand side of the site and we're going to do it this way. They do it. They're really great. So when COVID hit and we needed to put um, changes in on site to make our construction sites COVID safe, they adopted very quickly, very quickly the um, the new practices and processes we needed to the extent where the Master Builders Association, the head of their safety, has been using BuildCorp's processes as a benchmark to share with the rest of the industry. And they, builders are really great at that. So I want to touch wood before I say this. We haven't had a single COVID episode on any of our sites and very few construction companies have. So there's something in that. We can live with this and we've got to figure out how to live with COVID before we kill the economy. So I think there's something to look at in there. Because that's the other thing. COVID's not going to go. COVID's not going to go. And when COVID does go, there's going to be the next virus, right? So how are we going to learn to live differently? And I know it's going to be uncomfortable, but I think also with respect to the economy and businesses, okay, so somebody might lose a business and they may have to change and transform and adapt and be something else. And that was Charles Darwin. Evolution. He didn't talk about the strongest of the species. He spoke about the most adaptive to change. And frankly, if you can't adapt, and that was way before COVID, this was from 10 years ago, if you can't be nimble, if you can't adapt to change, you're not going to survive. And right now we're being called on to do this a lot more, change the way we do everything and sometimes change the way we work. And I think one of the things that was a blessing for me really as I began in, I studied in one profession ended up in another. Children make you be a bit more open and and fluid, which was great. And, of course, there are a number of other things I do now that have been really quite liberating uh, for me that are nothing to do with what I studied, but I'm open. And I think the more people in Australia who can think, right, my whole sector is gone now and I may not ever be a flight steward again. But what skills do I have that are transferable? And if I don't have them, what do I enjoy or what area am I happy to work in where I can see there may be a future? And we have to think a bit harder and we may not be in the jobs that we like for a period of time, but 
you know. I just think that's what we're going to need to do. What choice do we have? Because I look at this country and think, thank God we're here and not in Europe and not in America. And, I mean, anyone complaining about what's happening here now, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland and, and WA, you're tough. Yeah, we've got it pretty good, haven't we? We've got it very good. So your mindset is where is – I had a conversation uh, with the chief exec a couple of days ago who said, it is what it is. And I'm operating like we are now, and it's going to be for the next couple of years. I've made my mind up. We're just moving forward. So if good news comes along, terrific. Outside of that, this is the day in, day out. I'm getting accustomed to it, and so is the team. Is that where you guys are at? You have to. Head down, bum up. That was what we did day one when we began the business. There was a recession going on around us. We knew we, you know, we arguably we knew what we were doing, but we kind of didn't. We employed people who were very good. We employed a very good CFO, a very good chief estimator. Uh, we employed smart people and, and continue to do that and get smarter than us and keep them around us. But it would have been so easy to be paralysed and go, but, oh, my God, there's a recession. And I can't help Tony. I've got this baby coming and this is already hard. So very early I can remember Tony and I having a conversation that went something like, Okay, I can't help you, Tony, with this new business we've got, so you're going to have to just kind of run with that yourself and I'll go over and have the baby and don't worry about it and we'll catch up in three months and kind of see how we got on. Well, of course, it wasn't just like that, but it kind of was, right? So don't come to the baby classes anymore. I'll take one of my sisters and don't come to, and if you're okay that I, you know, and we'd have dinner at night, but often it was very late. But I I think this business of what have we got to do now? And rather than that's different and not the way I've already done, always done it, well, there's no room for that in any organisation or any headspace that things are going to move forward. So you mentioned air stewardesses a minute ago. which sort of leads me on to um, Qantas, which leads me on to the Wallabies, which leads me on to opportunities. You're very keen on the rugby. You want to talk us through the passion and how you support the game and potential opportunities? Yes. I, big question, uh, Greg. I've got a better one coming soon, Josephine. Oh, gosh. So I'm, my late father was a club doctor for the Canberra Raiders when they were in Sydney. I was raised on league, but I love the Sharks. So we'd always, you know, be down at rugby league somewhere, I often say, I think, just to get us out of the house to give mum a break, dad a pile, all four kids into the car and off we'd go. Don't reckon he laid eyes on us from 10 in the morning till, you know, six at night, but we had a great time. But then I met Tony Suka who at the time, it was 1985, and he was playing rugby union for a club in Sydney, Sydney University Rugby Club. And I had no idea of any of the players or the people. I'd never watched a game. His captain was a gentleman by the name of Michael Hawker. There were three brothers in the team by the name of Far Jones. I'd never heard of them. There was a man called David Brockoff wandering around. I just didn't know anything. Rupert Rosenblum had no idea. But he asked me to go down and watch him one day. He, we were engaged and I, Tony and I both graduated from UNSW. He was playing for Sydney Uni because um, New South Wales Uni didn't have a first division team and he was playing first grade. So I said to Dad, would you come with me to Sydney Uni? He'd study there. He said, sure. So I didn't know how to get there. And he was through my father. He went, oh, my God, I'm pretty sure that's Rupert Rosenblum. I'm like, I don't know what that is. One at a time I realised what I was watching that team, Tony Abbott, Peter Fitzsimons, uh, Bob Edgett, and it was amazing. So my a whole world opened up to me in 1985. And I think to Tony, who had played all of his rugby at West Rugby up until that, um, that year and moved over to Sydney University for the one year when we were engaged and it was um, a lovely environment. 
he felt really supported. He enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And he actually only played one year and then actually injured his back in a touch football game, if you can believe, and never played again after that, after that final year. But he felt that rugby shaped him and helped him learn how to be a better team player felt it had given him so much he did say to me one day when we begin our construction company I want to give back to the club that he felt supported him the most which was Sydney University also it had a alumni of players and uh, supporters that were the business community who we didn't know at the time who actually came along and supported Tony and I like the David Clarks of the world and look I won't start because I'm going to forget somebody but uh, if I do but certainly I, I call out David Clark because he uh, we went on to become clients of Macquarie Bank and still are, and he was one of our mentors and certainly guided Tony and I a lot in the early days of the business, which was incredibly formative. So it kind of became a thing where we started to sponsor a little team that became a bigger sponsorship and then a lot of teams and still seems to be going, which is a bit scary. We've been able to put a pause on that in the middle of a, a pandemic, thank goodness. We're honouring all the contracts we've got, but I'd like him to sort of um, – yeah, he might sell the house from under me to to make sure the Wallabies and Wallaroos win. I've got to say, mm. you still enjoy you still enjoy the game. I had no idea I'd love it as much as I do. I'm probably not the one who will sit there watching match after match after match and dissect it. I still don't know what the hell's happening at the breakdown. I just can't understand that after all these years of watching it. But I love the people in rugby. I love uh, what rugby has done for my family. Tony and I as part of the sponsorship of Sydney University, we used to go down to every home game for about 15 years and we'd invite clients, about 100 clients, we'd have their partners and kids and we'd have face painters and childminding and put on a lunch and my children were raised on the sideline, they'll tell you that. My son ended up playing rugby there, my late father played rugby there, my daughter, um, I think the club probably see her as part of the club you know, at that time, so rugby has been very good to our family. Been a great journey, and you're you're president now of women's rugby. Yeah, but when Bill Pulver became the CEO of Rugby Australia, he reached out to me a few weeks before he began in the role and said, "I'd love to have a conversation with you. I understand you understand a bit about women's rugby, and I'll be starting you in the role." And if it's a few days into the job, and and we caught up, and he said, "I'd like you to tell me what I, you think I need to know." about women's rugby he really wanted to try and get his head around and understand it and get it right and as part of his tenure there he invited me to be president of women's rugby which is still am and it's a great honor and what's the scale of, of that what's how many it's an honorary role so it uh that's all the really fun stuff like capping debutantes when they represent their country i'll look to be honest with you I've been with the girls anyway. We began sponsoring Sydney University Women's Rugby Club about 10 years ago and I didn't even know that they were a club but we've been at every home game for the you know previous 15 years, maybe more because we've been sponsoring the men's team for nearly 30 years and I didn't even know there was a women's team. And they came to meet with me one day with the head of the sports union at Sydney University, uh, the president actually, a man by the name of Bruce Ross, and they said, would you sponsor us? They came to Build Corp and I said, well, where do you play? I've never seen you play. I'm there at every home game. They said, oh, no, we're not allowed to play at Sydney Uni. <laughs> no, we play at Wetherill Park and like everywhere except the Uni because the fields had to be kept in good condition for the men. And I saw what they were wearing and they were wearing the boys' hand-me-downs or something else and sewing this. And it just, everything about it just didn't feel okay. I said, well, 
let me have a chat with Tony and I'll come back to you. And when I spoke to Tony, he said, well, why wouldn't we sponsor them? That's just crazy, which of course I expected to hear from him because he's been one of the greatest supporters of, well, I'd say women in, in my time. Um, he has very a very strong mother and sisters and he's um, that's what he's been raised around, which is unusual for a Lebanese man, I'd say. And so there began a journey with women and I guess lobbying for opportunities for the women that just didn't seem quite right and trying to understand though what the obstacles were to achieving those and seeing what Tony and I could do to understand those. So if there were money, we'd try and deal with the money thing. If there were to try to take off the table what some of the issues were, is a coverage from Foxtel, let me speak to the CEO of Foxtel, is a co- like what, what, you know, what are the issues, how can we help? use the levers of our sponsorship and our networks in a way that try to equalise the opportunities in the playing field for men and women to get our sport sponsorship fit, say, as we look more and more today's businesses to ensure that brands and products and sports we align ourselves with are aligned to our values, we risk compromising our ability to attract more good sponsors into rugby if we don't focus more broadly on men, women, children, community peace. I think that's every sport. And if you were to give the state of a nation or the, the twice a year address you do from your company, but on behalf of you gave that address from behalf of Rugby Australia. To you, or from? From. From Rugby Australia. Yeah, mm-hmm. You can give two as well, but what 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 are you seeing? Where's the, where's the game at? Where's, well, are people happy? You know, we've obviously seen this last week, the Qantas call of the day regarding sponsorship. Uh, is there enough fo- focus on the, in the, on the, in the thinking about the long term for the game? What are, what are your thoughts? So when any new chair or CEO comes into a role, I always like to give them benefit of the doubt and give them an opportunity to turn a ship around and there's no question the Rugby Australia needs a big turnaround and they have a new chairman, Hamish McLennan, who at face value seems to be making, you know, lots of good big decisions early, which is great. He hasn't placed a a new full-time CEO in the role. Rob Clark is there in an interim role and uh, seems to be doing a very good job with him. Um, I will always be that person saying to Rugby Australia, but where are the women's matches? But where are the women? But where? Because we had got rugby to a stage where every Bledisloe Cup that was being played was played as a double header with the Black Ferns and Wallaroos, and you know the Wallabies and All Blacks. So that's slipping a bit. We will be having a TRC um, this year, which is great, a rugby championship. But and there will be. I think our first matches are in Brisbane this year. There won't be a Black Ferns and Wallaroos match, and that's to do with the bubble. We're in, we're in a pandemic. We've sort of got to make some space for that at the moment but not for too long. We have a World Cup next year for the women in New Zealand, so I'm very keen to ensure we get as much opportunities for match time, as is Rugby Australia, I've got to say, because we do want an opportunity to win. But my observations are it got much worse than it ever needed to get in Rugby Australia, there's no question. Sponsors like Tony and I had been sharing our views for a very long time about what the issues were, and you can only do that for so long, and it's heartbreaking to watch the code you love being run so far into the ground to a point where now it will take years to turn it around and I feel really sorry for Hamish and his team, whoever is going to do that. But um, for people like us who have invested so much of our own money in rugby, often I think if, you know, I'd love people every time they are involved in any organisation to go, what would I do if it were my money? Because that's what I do. Whether I'm working for a not-for-profit or anywhere, what would I do if it were mine? Now sometimes that means 
perhaps making unpopular decisions or or seen as agitating in a way that you may not otherwise. But what would people do if it was their own money? For a little business like ours, you know, and poor old Tony Suka, we put millions of dollars into rugby. The rugby community deserves better than this. And there is money um, in rugby, there's no question. When recently a couple of gentlemen, David Baskey and David Mortimer, negotiated a contract with Mario Maxted from New Zealand to bring out the equivalent of our IRANS, we call it IRA, the International, I'm going to get this wrong, Rugby Association of Australia, that is an academy to develop players and coaches and managers. And they passed the hat around to bring this out to Australia and the money came at them thick and fast. You know, money follows people you trust and Tony and I invested in that um, heavily. There is money there for rugby when the leadership and the structure makes sense to business people. And uh, a lot of us are just waiting to see what that structure looks like and we've got to give Hamish time to put everything into place. So um, I'm frustrated and I'm a, I'm a bit sad because I don't believe it needed to get this bad. Unfortunately, COVID will colour some of this and make some of it look COVID, but we were in shocking shape prior to COVID. So where, where's rugby sitting compared to the other major sports? It's the last of the four codes. It always It's always been the smallest, but globally I still won't back away from the fact that we are the only code that can offer an Olympic gold medal, a Commonwealth gold medal, a, a World Cup. We punch above our weight, two World Cups of the men. I mean, you know, we're, we're sitting on the only gold medal so far for, you know, sevens, those women. So we have got the product. We just haven't been able to wrap our head around how to sell it and how to capitalise on the opportunities in this country. I'd argue Bill Corp have possibly done a better job of making money from rugby than sometimes rugby has, which is weird. I can't exactly tell you how, but people certainly know where the rugby people, which is a bit strange. But that alignment for us was always around aligned to the values of rugby union and what rugby was and how we perceived it. And I can remember there was about 10 years back, 15 years, we did our, you know, just when you do your review of your values, do they still line up? Every single one of our values, Tony had sitting alongside that value, a wallaby, you know, passion, fill war, um, preparation, something like that, um, or preparedness, Dan Vickerman. So, you know, every single one of them, Tony's vernacular when he addresses people is always rugby talk. You know, he sees the structures team are like a good set of forwards. God help you if you don't understand rugby when you come to Build Corp. And the services and finishes teams are like the backs and you get the ball out and I see these doe-eyed looking young women come into the business and young men who aren't remotely interested in rugby try and understand how he sees a, a good high-performing teamwork, but, you know. And does rugby, did, did rugby lose sight or lose engagement with its supporters like yourself? I wonder if sometimes if you think you're under attack, you just sort of bunker down and stop listening. And I, I guess some of my observations and Tony's work, perhaps they think that the community sharing their concerns, they don't know how to hear it anymore because we did have unhelpful contributions by some people in the media who just their contributions were nothing other than destructive. I would get it if you don't know what to listen to and what to hear, but sometimes you turn off to the wrong people and you turn on to the right ones. It's a bit, it's, it's unfortunate and, and people like Tony and I are really sad that the Waratahs barely get anyone there. It's devastating. The, 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 the Super Rugby has ended up as where, where it has. It's just... I can't understand that. Well, I guess I can when we stop listening. I walked out of my office on the way here today and I um, walked across Martin Place and I looked up and I thought that Build Corp logo looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Any chance that can be on a, uh, a Wallaby Guernsey one day? Ah, wouldn't Tony Suka love that? 
<laughs> well, maybe wouldn't the country like to see a family business really reflecting the true values matched with the Wallaby spirit or the revival of the Wallaby spirit? Oh, I think Rugby Australia will have a, a good corporate sponsor lined up for them, I'm sure, but uh, certainly it would be something Tony Sukal would love one day. There's no question. Don't know that's what we do in the middle of a pandemic, to be honest with you, but certainly please somebody. There's good buying out there. There's a jersey free. Somebody getting behind the wallabies. We need a hand. And, you know, I think though the quicker, and it's always very difficult to demonstrate your values and what you stand for, you've sort of got to live them for a period of time. So for someone to arrive and go, even a CEO goes, here's who I am, here's what I stand for, it's going to be hard to get that engagement for the money to then follow, which is why the appointment of the new CEO is so critical. And if it's somebody who comes with a reputation where the rugby community goes, oh, trust, the money's there. That money's there. It'll be released for the right leader. Jason, where money isn't is in charity at the moment. They're going to be struggling for the next period of time. Can you talk us through the philanthropy work you and your business has done? I, I read some numbers. It's Build Corp Foundation has raised over three point three million and distributed two point six million to various charities, but you want to give us a bit of sort of flavour and context behind it all and, and why you are involved so heavily in that area? When I was at home raising our children and when they were little, I spent quite a bit of time or as much as was sensible at the kids' school, you know, being tuck shop mum, class teacher, all the things you do that are fantastic and, and so formative and, you know, you can never get that time back again. So I loved it. And as part of that, I learned that I was okay at organising things and fundraising and that led to some not-for-profit committees and fundraisers and then not-for-profit boards and exposed me to that world of fundraising and philanthropy on the side of uh, this business of where you have your hand out asking for money. I was then appointed to a board, the trust company, which was then sold to Perpetual by Chairman Bruce Collett, and he wanted somebody who had worked in fundraising and who had also built a business. One of the benefits of working on that board, and it was my first public company board, was that I saw what making distributions from philanthropic funds looked like when it was done well. And so I had this interesting lens of having my hand out and watching how money's given away well. And Tony and I, like so many other businesses, had been involved in making lots of donations to lots of charities over your life. Everybody does. But I sat back one day and I said to Tony, I'm not entirely sure that we're making the impact we think we want to and perhaps we might be better off doing this through a a structure. And I established the Build Corp Foundation and we asked our people what they thought we might like to support. And for the first few years, our staff voted on the causes they thought were important to them. And they contribute. We have workplace giving that Tony and I dollar match. They have site barbecues. Um, they do some scary things that make me, you know, think, I hope this is okay. Like, you know, charge subbies to park in some car parking thing and make them make a donation to the foundation. And I'm like, oh, my God, I hope that's okay. I hope someone doesn't, say, you know, sack me and deregister our foundation. But they all come with the very best intentions. But they. The, our staff came to us one year and said, would you mind if we hosted a 
a fundraiser in your backyard. I think they called it a little soiree or something like that. I'm like, sure, it's a great idea. And that happens now every year. Well, did happen. I understand it was the last big party that Sydney saw. We had 810 people on the 7th of March in our backyard. Those events raise an awful lot of money and the majority of the funds uh, that have come from those events have been distributed to organisations that look after the mental health of Australians. So Lifeline have received a million dollars and an organisation called Smiling Mind, which delivers mindfulness programs to school children, received $1.2 million from the foundation. And that particular Smiley Mind one, in partnership with the New South Wales State Government, is about to wrap up, which is very exciting this year. And the commitment was to roll out mindfulness training to 100,000 primary school children and 8,000 teachers across 400 schools. And by the time that finishes, with those same funds, they're going to be, would have hit 117,000. 500 primary school children and over 8,000 teachers in 470 schools. It's been amazing. They have, in the middle of COVID, were rolling out their program and, of course, schools were shut down and they quickly flipped their business model. They'd been looking at it anyway to an online delivery project because it's a program designed by psychologists and they've been delivering it online and it's given them greater reach. So uh, we're delighted by that and that will wrap up a pilot project that we engaged with with the New South Wales Department of Education. They matched us dollar for dollar, so $2.4 million to get to each of those. It was terrific. And we'll be reporting on the outcome of that, but um, all early signs say particularly helpful. And uh, for all the wrong reasons, it's landed at the right time. Um, children suffering the effects of drought, bushfires, and now COVID, the anxiety levels of primary school children are uh, raised very high. And what began as perhaps something we were going to support for one year or a couple of years, mental health has now just become what we do at the foundation. Uh, mental health is a focus because since we began on this journey, the ill mental health of the nation is um, increasing almost exponentially. It's terrifying. And I think we all need our shoulder to the wheels to figure out how we can uh, sort that one out. Josephine, before you came here today, I did a bit of homework on you and I made a couple of calls. Uh, One of those um, bits of feedback was that uh, she's one of the most determined women I've ever met or one of the most determined persons I've ever met. And there is no person, and she puts her mind to it, that she cannot get to if the cause is right. Does that is that pretty real? Because people don't always give that easily. And you've got to be very focused to be in front of these people. Well, that's the first part. The second part is incredibly persuasive. <laughs> I think if you're doing something you really believe in, you don't need to figure out your pitch. Right. And it's got to make commercial sense and it has to make sense for everybody. When we started on our journey with the foundation and particularly in trying to understand how we could shift the dial a bit for mental health of young people, we began with a view that, okay, politicians, they're all in it for me. All they want to do is understand what can I announce, what can I do, what can you do for me? I have to give a shout-out to Rob Stokes, who was Minister for Education at the time, and I had a chat with him and it was something along the lines of if you had a million dollars from a foundation like ours, what would you do with it? And he spoke to you know, he spoke to his head, Mark Scott, and they said, yes, there's this program we'd like to roll out, and that happened and they, we went into partnership with them and it was terrific. 
But when I spoke to Rob Stokes, it was just before the last election, and said to him, which I was absolutely prepared to do and still am, and, and now they're equal partners, so it is theirs, if you don't care who takes credit for what you're doing, if you just focus on the end game. I rang Rob Stokes and said, thanks so much. Received a letter from Mark. We're in partnership. We're starting. It's great. I'm really excited. I know you've got an election coming up. Let me know if there's anything we can do. Announce this if you want, if this helps you win. You deserve it. And he said, absolutely not. This is yours. You do. So if your intention is right, if why you're at the table is for the right reasons, it's much easier to open doors, I think. And our focus was on how do we stop the increasing number of phone calls that Lifeline are receiving when they weren't even getting all their calls last year. And our view was we've got to get back down to when they're children and start down here to give our young people, our young Australians, tools to learn how to deal with life when it comes at them in tricky ways the way it has this year and last year. How do we try and 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 temper what's happening at that crisis support end? How do we get into this preventative piece? And if that's genuinely where you're starting, you know, in a right place, it, for someone like me, it gives me courage to pick up the phone to someone like Rob Stokes and go, you don't know me, <laughs> but I'm and, and then to prosecute a case well because I've genuinely done my homework and if you do it in a respectful way, hopefully, yeah, people will see the right thing, but you, you can't be hung up on who's, like why are you doing it? And the, and the reasons were genuine. So I think that's how. Let me ask you another question. Why are you um, pursuing boards? Here you are. You've got a great reputation. You and your husband set up a fantastic business, which is 30 years young. You must be flat out in this in this sort of period of time. You're doing a lot of work with charities, as you just say. And now you're um, you're in the big big wide world of listed boards. Why so? It's been quite serendipitous that I've, for all the wrong reasons, my unstructured life, I think I knew what success looked like, which was um, raise a happy, healthy family that are independent and could look after themselves and that's done. They've been out of the house for a long time now. The business, to have a business that is self-sustaining with great leadership and we're blessed we've got very good leaders in the business. And the reality was Tony and I have more time now and bandwidth than we did. And the boards that I'm on, I was approached to join. I haven't really actively sought them. And so you say no to a lot, but every now and then one comes across where you think you can actually add value because you're right. You don't want to, at my age and stage, be involved in something where you don't think you can make a difference. And it'd be weird if you did it and you couldn't make time for it. Like, why would you do it? So when something interesting comes along, like the very last board that I feel very honoured to join, Washington H. Sol Patterson, that's great. I've had huge admiration for the chairman of that board and that business for a long time. If you know the board, you know the directors, it makes sense to you uh, where they're heading and you feel you can make a contribution, why wouldn't you? I know I do have width. I can take on perhaps more than others do. I don't seem to need as much sleep as others and I do like to be kept busy. So it's much safer keeping me busy, Greg, than let me have too much time on my own. I could get up to anything. God help the country. Speaking of um, the country and standing back a little bit, world affairs. Okay, you obviously don't need much sleep, so you must be reading the papers at night or scanning stuff. What's what, what, Where do you see Australia in regards to its role in Southeast Asia and its role in relationships with other, other countries? I think we're all learning from COVID-19 
particularly if you're a university or um, in some particular sectors, resources sectors, what happens when you put all your eggs in one basket? You know, our grandmothers could have told us that. We got a bit top-heavy in one country and it was a hard lesson to learn, but we made very good relations with all of our neighbours, there's no question. But uh, by our own hand, we let ourselves become too dependent, particularly universities um, as one of the sectors on, on one country, China, and that's our fault, not theirs. And we need to look a bit more broadly. So when I look at the region, of course there are concerns, um, uh, geopolitical concerns, which I think will only be concerns if we can't uh, manage our relations with our our neighbours well. I have a, a really interesting role with DFAT. I chair the Sports Diplomacy Advisory Council for the Foreign Minister and she has a very strong view that sport is the greatest soft power tool this country has or one of the greatest, and I agree with her. So with that, she formed a council and it has some very eminent Australian uh, current and past athletes and and uh, business people on it, and she wants the council to help her improve diplomatic relations and trading opportunities with our Indo-Pacific partners and so we're about to do that at the moment. But what's heartening for someone like me is that they understand that that's a thing and they've reached out to, in this case, the business and sport community to give them some support and advice on how to do that. They pretty much know how to do this, I think, but we we have to tread carefully. I think also it's time, as I said, for us to look at ourselves as a nation and and say, well, if we have every resource we actually need as a country, when are we going to grow up and go, how do we look after ourselves? So I led a trade delegation to Israel a couple of years ago with um, David Clark, the chairman of Charter Hall, for the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce. There's a country with very few natural resources, no water, no, and I look at, at our country and it would be wonderful if we could somehow either shift the headspace of Australians to reimagine how we want to be in 50 years' time. So I feel like we began that everyone should be highly educated, everybody should have a degree, everybody should. Really? How's that working out for us? I'm not sure it is. You know, we're having trouble to get people at the moment to pick the fruit on the trees where finally we've got crops, you know. Um, isn't it? To milk the cows. To how We have taken some of the professions which we now respect more than any others, like teaching and nursing and cleaners, some of what we now know thanks to a pandemic are the most important professions and careers, others. I mean, how do we elevate those and reframe them? And um, on an early morning walk this morning, I was uh, thinking of that show CSI where there was a big rush on young people wanting to become crime scene investigators because there was a really cool show. And on on my walk, I'm thinking, how do we make it really cool to milk cows and sort of grow, you know, vegetables and and work in manufacturing and trade? And if I think back to my grandfather's business, Midford, it felt like as a young girl to me there were oceans and oceans of, of women machinists and uh, uh, me and my cousins, our holiday job was to go to Midford as, uh, over the Christmas holidays and help pack all the school shirts out and get them out to um, all the schools that needed them. And these were really respected, noble professions. I'm not entirely sure how we got so off piste with some of our discussions in this. All the builders are still working. All the tradesmen are really uh, valuable. I think we need to have a bit of a rethink about what we want our country to look like, what resources we've got, and it's going to be the easiest to do. How do we secure ourselves geopolitically 
and how do we market and pitch ourselves to young Australians to say, here are some other ways you may imagine yourself, but I think we might need something very cool to attract that because we really got the messaging wrong. Have we gone too politically correct? Because you can't say you can't say anything these days without someone calling you X, Y, and Z, or you can't have a debate without someone going on a personal attack. Oh, we, we don't know how to engage in proper civil discourse anymore. It has to be really binary, our discussion. So do you hate Donald Trump or not? Do you believe in climate change or not? Do you believe it? You know, we, we don't know how to have um, informed public conversations unless it's really binary. And unfortunately, um, we will hear people shouted down by, and you see it a lot in the media, particularly in left media, uh, shouted down if there's a view that anyone is about to express that is going to be different to what that journalist wants to hear, forget it. And that's really unfortunate. It's probably no different how it's always been, but I feel like um, it's more of the same. So I, I see what's happening is rather than people being open and having discussions about why they have taken a particular position or feel a particular way. They're terrified to voice a position, so vote quietly to one side privately rather than allow themselves to influence or be influenced by somebody else. And I think that um, inability to know how to engage in genuinely intelligent public discourse is going to affect our nation and we're seeing it with the world. And you touched on very early, Josephine, you mentioned the Federation of the States. Okay, so if we're, going to, if we're going to put this country back together, as you're saying, with a, a way to think a little bit differently and get that spirit back up, are we going to um, have a new constitution, maybe a republic? Is that, what, is that what you're thinking? Or am I jumping ahead here? I think we probably need to sit back at the end of this year and go, so what worked for us and what didn't? And what worked, what do we need to do more of, and what didn't work, what do we need to tweak, move, or wholesale change? And if we don't, I think we've missed the biggest opportunity. Right now, at times like now, the whole country has been given an opportunity, every business, every person, to relook at itself and go, okay, how are we going to move forward from now? Here's our line in the sand, and I would think that the way our, our country is governed, and I've said this to some of the sporting bodies, the way our sporting bodies are governed. Do we do we think our federated model is working well for us in rugby? I don't think it is. I'd like to see it undone. So I think it's a time for all of us to look back and, um, you know, at the end of this year, please, God, let it all turn around at the end of this year and say, what did we learn? Because if we come out the other end of this pandemic and go back to business as usual and have learnt nothing and changed nothing, we'll deserve what's coming. And if I was a young man and I had a partner who was seven months pregnant, would I go into business in this period of time? It's also different, right? I don't know. But for us, the, the benefit of youth is you don't know what can go wrong. So you have a courage, which is why you need to have young people in your business. They tell you all the really big scary ideas because they don't have the experience of knowing all the ways it can possibly go wrong, which is so limiting. So... Yes, you uh, should, only if you are both prepared to do the really hard work and only if you are both prepared to roll your sleeves up at the right time and none of this, that's not my job, that's not my responsibility. I, I can remember Tony would leave home very early. We are living in the Shire and he was driving his Chatsfield, so he'd be in his car at five in the morning. I wouldn't be home till seven, eight at night. I'd always have dinner on the table for him. I have been interviewed by that many women who want me to talk about how devastating it was to have dinner on the table for my husband. I said, he would ring and say, what do you want me to pick up for dinner? And I'd say, don't be mad. We're in the middle of a 
recession. Don't you dare spend money on takeaway. I've got dinner here. It's on the table. But there was never any, you know, I or me. It was always we. And any young couple prepared to muck in together and not that's my job, that's her job, that's his. And if they work hard and they have prepared themselves the way we did, which is pretty scary, but I think, you know, we'd mentally prepared ourselves, give it a go. If you were to look back at that young Josephine growing up in the Shire and coming home and dad being pretty exhausted but listening to everyone have a chat to him, what advice would you give her now? So back to our upbringing, when you're from a family um, in the Middle East or Europe or Asia even, the wisest person in the village is the oldest person. So when Tony came and proposed to me and spoke to my father, he also had my both my grandfathers there. Yep, yep. And that was just how it was then. It was hilarious. My children think it's hilarious. Actually, even my sisters and brother thought that was hilarious when they heard about that, but that's just how it was. Uh, but why? Because you expect that someone who's lived a really long time is going to help you make a good life decision because they've lived a long time and done that, particularly if they happen to love you, which my grandparents did. And mine and Tony's experience has always been listening to and taking counsel from people who are more experienced than us. And I think we did that. And I would uh, say Josephine continue to do that, uh, that because that worked really well for us. We have always sought the counsel of people who are older and wiser than us. We actually think it's really strange when we see some of the accounting and law firms compulsorily retire partners at 55, whereas where I'm from, they'd go, 55, you're so wet behind the ears, how hilarious, you don't know anything yet. So, yeah, that, uh, value people who've been there before because they, without question, no person with an MBA, no person with anything has been as valuable counsel to us as someone who's um, lived a good full life. On that, Josephine, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to No Limitations. 